Well, good morning. As Paul said, my name is Ben Dockery, and I have the privilege of serving here as the campus pastor at Lake Forest. Those of you that are uh, with us from the 01 venue, we're glad that you're uh, down here this morning. It's spring break here, and so I'm making the assumption that if you're here, you're holding off on your getaway, your trip to the beach, so you could hear me preach this morning. And that's just the assumption I'm working with. Uh, You don't have to correct that later on. Um, But I do want to talk to you, even if that's a false assumption or false perception, I want to talk to you about assumptions that we have and perceptions that we have about God and how it shapes the way that we view things, how we view the world, how we read the circumstances in our lives. There was a middle school uh, teacher who was uh, in the English class, and she wanted to show her students how uh, what they bring to their classroom, their lives, shapes how they read and view things. So she put a sentence on the board and wanted to show them that this sentence needs more punctuation and wanted to see how each of them were going to respond to it. So the sentence looks like this, if you can see it up here. And it says, a woman without her man is nothing. And she said, you need to add uh, punctuation to this. And so she got different results as she was anticipating. And the male students added commas and semicolons and it looks something like this. On average, it says, a woman without her man is nothing. That's how the guys put the commas. But the women did it differently. This is what the women put on there. It says, a woman, without her, man is nothing, right? <laughs> and there's the elbows going on, I can see. And, and so clearly what we're bringing and how it could potentially benefit us is the way that we, could, we can read into a situation. And as we look at some stories together around Palm Sunday in the Gospels this morning, I submit to you that uh, I think that's true. That's exactly what's happening in some of the misunderstandings that are happening in this passage. And hopefully it may give us a different perspective on the way that we see these things as well. Um, as, as, uh, as before I read this uh, passage in John chapter 12, if you want to be turning there, John chapter 12, we're going to be looking there first. Um, I realize that coming into a Sunday like this, uh, that many of you have different thoughts about who God is and what God wants for your life. Um, If you play the word association game, even just with the word God itself, some of you, if I say God, your first thoughts are he's distant, uh, he's old or irrelevant, it's my spouse's thing or that's my parents' thing, or God is cruel, or there could be different words that you associate. Others, you are in the exact opposite spectrum. You think God is near and, and God is powerful or God is father or God is protector or strength or provider or helper in times of need. There's, there's different associations that we all have when we come to God. And, I, and sometimes it takes something from the outside to really draw out what we think about who God is. In John chapter 12, this is um, a passage of scripture that's coming into the last week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And he's, he's coming from the town of Bethany into Jerusalem. He's entering in Jerusalem. And as you saw the kids earlier uh, waving the palms, this is where Jesus is entering into the city. And there's people that are also waving palms. And so John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, this is what John writes. It says, The next day when the large crowd had come to the festival and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. And just as it was written, fear no more, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him 
when he'd called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. And this is also why the crowd had met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world still goes after him. As Jesus is entering into this uh, into Jerusalem here at this time. Jerusalem, scholars would say that it, the population is probably 100,000 people or so that live in Jerusalem. But when it's the Passover festival, the, all the surrounding towns are actually sort of coming into the city to, to uh, be a part of the festivities and the celebrations. And so the population could swell uh, easily 10 times, 15 times what it is. So there could be a million people in Jerusalem uh, over the next few weeks and months. And what they're doing as Jesus is coming in is, is uh, word is spreading about some of the miracles that he's done. And specifically this miracle about raising a dead man out of the grave. You have, you have this story in Bethany where Lazarus has already died. He's in the tomb. His body's beginning to rot. You can smell the odors coming out. Jesus shows up in the town, calls this man out of the grave, and word spreads like crazy. People who are coming into Jerusalem are checking their Twitter feed to see where is this trending story happening. And as Jesus is coming in, they get their palm branches and say, this must be the Messiah. This must be the one that God has brought to us. And as they're doing that, I want to submit to you this morning that I think what they're trying to do is they're looking for a king, they're looking for a savior. The reason they're saying Hosanna, a word that means save or rescue or deliver or bring us out, they're looking for a savior who will change their circumstances. Their assumption is that God would be sending a king or a messiah or a ruler who would change the circumstances of their life. And I I think that that's actually a misperception that they have about who Jesus is, that first and foremost— He's going to bring them out of their circumstances. What Jesus is doing when he's coming into this town is he's actually telling his disciples and telling them something very different. And, and as, he, as he enters into the town and, and people are, are chanting Hosanna, one of the things Jesus is doing is he's saying over and over, he's saying, I am not coming to Jerusalem to stay in Jerusalem. I'm not coming into this town to set up my throne and my kingdom and my administration. The 12 disciples are not my cabinet. They're going to rule and reign and, and govern here in Jerusalem so that the kingdom that I'm setting up will be established in this place. Actually, as I'm going into Jerusalem to fulfill the mission the Father has for me, I am leaving. I'm not staying here. And as I leave, it is something that is good for you. As I leave, it's actually better for you that I leave than that I stay. But the crowd and the disciples themselves, their perception would have been that Jesus would stay. And, and I'm in some ways sympathetic to this because they might have really good biblical uh, reasons for this. As somebody who went to seminary, you always want to have good biblical reasons for how you're interpreting the world. So maybe they're looking back and they're saying, what did Moses do when God put his hand on Moses? Well, Moses delivered them out of the slavery where they were. And what about jo- and Joshua? Well, he led them from one place to another into a new land. And what about David? Well, David set up rule and power for Israel. And what about Solomon? Solomon builds this great city and he builds the temple. And in each one of those circumstances, uh, what, what the God is doing through these rulers, he's changing the circumstances of the people. And so that would likely be what they're looking for Jesus to do in their lives as well. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm not coming to change your circumstances or to take you out of your circumstances. I'm coming to take on your circumstances. I'm coming to take on and enter into the pain and the suffering that you're living in. It's the first thing that Jesus is coming to tell us is that he is entering into our circumstances with us. When uh, I was looking at um, 
studying this week, there was a quote, when you're, when you're trying to change how you read something, when you're trying to per- change your perceptions on different things. Uh, Peter Drucker uh, has written a lot on how this works itself out in the workplace, and he was somebody I used to study to try to uh, do better at my job when I was in um, academic administration. And he has this great quote, and he says this. He says that if you're trying to change your perceptions, he says, just as the human ear does not hear sounds above a certain pitch, so the human perception altogether does not perceive what is beyond its range of perception. So when you, cha- when you have a change in perception that takes place, it's not the facts that change, it's the meaning of the facts that change. I'll say it again. When a change in perception takes place, it's not the facts that change, it's the meaning of the facts that change. For some of us this morning, we're looking to God, and our first thought is that we need God to take us out of our circumstances. But what God is saying, and what Jesus is saying is entering in, is saying, I'm coming to take on your circumstances. I'm coming to be with you in the middle of whatever it is that you are going through. A couple years ago, Julie and I were in a place in our life where, uh, to sum it up, life wasn't working, right? That's a good phrase. Uh, it just wasn't working out the way that we thought it was. We were asking God to change the circumstances in our life, the situation we were in. We just wanted it altered. We'd been asking that, kind of hoping for that for a long time. And it was one day, particularly when this was a heightened day, and our kids are completely unaware, hopefully, of what's going on. But they are in the other room, and they, we have a record play at our house, so they go get this record of this singer-songwriter that we listen to. She's a young girl. She's written a lot about the troubles in her life, um, and she writes a song, and it's called Find You Here is the name of the song. And so the girls put that on, and they're in the other room. They're just singing this song at the top of their lungs and loving it. And it just so happens that God used that song to interrupt us where we were that day to help us see that we had a misperception about what we were asking God to do here. So I want you to hear the words of this song. Um, this, uh, or this singer song, her name's Ellie Holcomb, and the song is called Find You Here, and this is what she writes. She says, I didn't know that I would find you, meaning God. I didn't know I would find you here in the middle of my deepest fear. But you were drawing near. Here in the middle of a lonely night. Here in the middle of a losing fight. Here in the middle of deep regret. Here in the middle when healing hasn't happened yet. Here in the middle of the desert place. Here in the middle when I cannot see your face. I didn't know that I would find you here. But you are drawing near. The promise of God as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem is that his presence is going to be with us. That when he leaves, he is sending his spirit to be with us no matter what it is that we go through. And when we recognize that, when we believe and stand on that, that God is with us in the midst of all of our circumstances, it can change our perception. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing uh, with the crowd and with his disciples here. The second perception that I think uh, we can change is not just who Jesus is, what kind of king he is, but really the way that he is working in our life. If you have your Bibles, flip over one more. I want you to look at John 13. And this is the next, one of the next stories uh, that comes here. John 13, beginning in verse 3. And this is just a few days after Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And he's going to have this meal, this Passover meal, with his disciples And John actually doesn't record uh, the meal here in the same way, but he records something that Jesus does off to the side in verse 3. This famous when he's washing the disciples' feet. And this is what it says. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from the supper and he laid aside his robe. He took a towel. He tied it around himself. And next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that was around him. 
In verse 6, he says, He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, What I am doing, you don't understand. So it's this repeated phrase here. But afterwards, you will know. And Peter says, You will never wash my feet, ever. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus is starting to work in Peter's life, and Peter instinctually stops him and says, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I don't want you to do this. Okay? His instincts are betraying what he really thinks, and what he really thinks in this situation, even though it may seem like it's humble, no, you're the leader, you're the master, I don't want you to serve me, I don't want you to act like a servant to come into my life. I want, I, let me do this. Let me do the foot washing that's there. But instinctually, what Peter is doing is he's saying, Jesus, I know better than you do. <laughs> I know better how you should be treating me than you know how to treat me. Is what Peter is telling him instinctually here is that, hey, I am actually the one that knows what is going on. His instincts are betraying uh, what I would say is a misperception of who he is. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought that about God or not the way God might be treating you, that you look to God and say, hey, no, 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 that's not actually how it works. Um, this is how it should be set up. This is how you should be working in my life. When Jesus tells Peter, you must be clean, you must allow me to clean your feet, what is he actually saying here? What does this actually mean? Well, Peter wants to do the work. Peter wants to serve Jesus. Peter wants to, you know, uh, make sure that, that he is the one that is acting in this situation. And Jesus says, no, the first work that I'm coming to do is something that I exclusively can do. I am the only one that can do this work in your life. You don't get to work. You only get to receive the gift that I am bringing you. As we come to Jesus, that's the first thing he tells all of us, is you don't bring anything to the table in this. You're not showing up with family or power or money or leverage or good works or service. You're not showing up with that. The first thing you must do is you must receive the work that I am doing. And this, for us as Christians, is, is uh, the way into the kingdom of God is the way into faith, but it's also this deeply humiliating thing uh, because it means raising your hand and saying, I'm not good enough. It means raising your hand and saying, I don't have what it takes. It means raising your hand and saying, there's an inadequacy in me. It means raising your hand and saying, I'm on the hook for contributing to the evil in the world. And there's this, there's this uh, death sentence that is on my life because of my sin. And I need somebody to come and to clean me. I need somebody to come and to bring me out of that place in my life. And that's exactly what Peter is telling. That's exactly what Jesus is telling Peter here in this passage. So what does Peter do? He says, okay, if you're going to clean me... Jesus, go ahead, but don't just clean my feet. Clean my whole body as well in the next verse, right? Again, he betrays himself and shows, Jesus, that may be what you need to do, but let me tell you how you need to do it. Don't just clean my feet. If you want to bring me in, I need you to do it according to my method as well, all right? I, I want you to just clean all of who I am. And Jesus says, no, absolutely not. You don't need that. The only thing you need for me to do is to clean your feet. For many of us, uh, even when we submit to God, if you will, and we try to, to say, okay, God, I need you. I need you to be the one that works in this area. I need to stop not to work, but to receive the work that you've done for me. After that, when God works in our life, we immediately turn back around and say, but 
here's how I need you to do this. Um, when we were, uh, shortly after we were first married, um, it was 2007 or so, housing market was fantastic. We were both right out of grad school. Um, they were doing 100% financing. Some of you remember this. We were a young couple, both had jobs. This is great. You know, why put money down on a house when you can buy a new couch right out of grad school? So that's what we did. And a year later, um, 2008, we're moving uh, from Tennessee up to Kentucky so I can go do my doctoral work. And as we do, we put our house in the market. And uh, West Tennessee got hit harder than everybody else, so the the houses were worth nothing. Um, We're already in Kentucky at this time. I haven't sold a house in Tennessee. And so I've got a job. I'm excited about my job, but haven't figured out how to pay both the mortgage in Tennessee and to live in Kentucky. And so slowly, like the pressure is, you know, squeezing us. The clamps are coming on our life. Julie's pregnant any day. We're about to have, a, have our first child, which is great. And so her job or her, where she was working, they downsized. So she was transitioning out of that job anyway. And so I'm looking for a second job, try to figure out how I'm going to pay the bills, how this is going to work. They didn't have Uber at the time. I would have driven a car at night. Uh, that would have been an easy thing for me to probably pick up, but they didn't have that. So I'm looking around thinking what we're going to do. And of course, we're looking to God saying, God, I don't know if you're working in our life, but this is not how this actually works. We just moved here so that you could send us, you know, to do doctoral work and, and study things. So something is not working in this plan, right? We had, we had a better method for how God should work in our life than he did at the time. And I get a phone call from a friend and he says, hey, the pastor of our church is moving to California and in a few weeks, we're going to need somebody to fill in and preach. Well, I, I didn't go to seminary to be a preacher, and I didn't uh, think about myself in that way. But I did go to seminary, and I knew I could at least stand up and finish sentences. And he said they'd pay me 75 bucks. So I was like, I'm in. Um, and so I go to this little church in Kentucky, and I, and I show up, and I preach. And the chairman of the deacons, one of my favorite men in the whole world, Mr. Wally, he's 80-something years old, and he comes up afterwards, and he says, hey, we don't have anybody for next week. Can you come do that again? And I said, well, you pay me again. And he said, sure. And uh, so I'd show up the next week. And over the course of several weeks and months, as we're trying to pay mortgage in Tennessee and live our lives in Kentucky and do that, I, uh, this isn't necessarily First Peter 5, the motive that you should get into ministry so that you get paid. It's actually the opposite. Um, <laughs> but that's what the, you know, for us at the time, even in, even in this state of lack of faith, God is using this as a means to bring me specifically and Julie and I into this life where we would see ministry as a way forward for us in our lives. It wasn't the method that we would have chosen. As a matter of fact, it's the method that we rejected constantly. Like Peter, we were saying, God, we know a better way of how you need to be working in our life. But let me just tell you, if you're here this morning and you're in the middle of a crunch of some kind, whether it's health or family or finances or whatever it might be, relational, I don't know what's going on. I'm not, I'm not pretending to be God. But I'm telling you that God oftentimes redeems these very things. These, these points of pain in our lives are exactly the things that later on God is going to use as a ministry in your life. He's going to give you something to do and redeem sometimes one of the most broken parts of who you are in your life. The hardest things that you go through oftentimes are going to what he's going to use you to be an instrument for his grace and his hope and his glory in the future through things just like this. He does this with Peter. Later on, Peter, when he's writing a letter to the church, he says he uses this language of being cleansed to talk about how God handles our sin. He's using this moment when Peter misunderstands this to do that. So first, We can misunderstand who Jesus is as the king. Second, we can misunderstand how Jesus is working in our life, the methods that he's using. And then lastly, I want us to see that we can also misunderstand who we are. 
It's, it's easy to misunderstand who we are in the midst of this. Um, there is a, uh, and, and there's a lot of work in, in the psychology world and the business world about how you perceive yourself. And uh, there's a lady named Christ, Christy Hedges. She's an executive coach, and she's working with one of her clients, and she writes, um, a, she writes an article on something that's uh, in, in the uh, article called Transparency Illusion. And the transparency illusion is essentially saying that, that we all assume that other people understand our motives, that we, we understand that the way that we're acting, um, that people understand what it is we're trying to do. Uh, but oftentimes there's a huge gap in between what we think we're doing and how that impacts other people, right? There's this huge gap and there's this transparency illusion. We fill in the gaps with saying, oh, of course people understand what it is I'm trying to do. So she gives an example of one of her clients and this guy's this guy's super bright, uh, but he's one of those guys that when he's in a meeting, he's processing information faster than everybody else. He just his wheels are turning faster. Uh, he's taking all the data, he's compiling it. He's already got a solution for it. Most people in the room even grasp kind of what it is that's being presented. He's one of those people. But what he doesn't see and what he doesn't understand about himself is while he's doing that, he's making this face. He has this grimacing face, right, where he's processing the information. Everybody else thinks, oh my goodness, this guy is, is just annoyed. I mean, what, what is, you know, why is he so mad? Why, why, when I'm trying to tell him these things, is he angry? Why does he look like, why is he making me feel bad while I'm up front giving this information? And what she says is that this is a career-limiting reality of who this person is, right? You all know exactly. You've been in meetings with someone like this. You may be this person. Um, and, and what happens is there's this gap that we don't perceive who we are in the midst of it. And she says, you have to begin to see yourself as other people see yourself if you're going to blow forward, move forward in your career. If not, you're going to remain limited. Well, what I want to submit to you this morning is that the same is true with us, not about your career. I can't help you in that sense necessarily, but in your spiritual life, it is altogether important for us to understand who we are and how we perceive ourselves. It's important for us to identify who we are and where we are in the story. So I'm going I'm to flip over to John chapter 19. And this is the last little element of this last week in Jesus' life I want us to look at. In John chapter 19, um, this is where Jesus is uh, on trial now. So the Pharisees have already turned him over to the Roman leadership And in John chapter 19, uh, beginning here in verse 36, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate's going to be the one that says, okay, now they've brought you forward. They've had a death wish in your life. You're under a death sentence. And Pilate gets to make the determination of whether Jesus um, is crucified or not. And so in verse 36, um, I'm not going to read the entire trial to you back and forth. But beginning here, this is what Jesus says in response to Um, Let me back up actually to verse 33. I'll give you a little more context. Verse 33. uh, John records this. He says, Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, and he summoned Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you this about me? And Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your chief priest handed you over to me, so what have you done? And Jesus replies, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origins here. And Pilate asked, are you a king then? You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate says, what is truth? After this, he said, he went out to the Jews and he told him, I find no grounds for charging this man. 
But you have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you this king of the Jews? And they shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. In the other gospel stories, we understand that Barabbas is a revolutionary, meaning that, uh, that he's trying to overturn the powers of Rome that are, that are leading and, and uh, oppressing the people in this area. And Barabbas is at least murdered, uh, potentially he's a thief as well. So he's got the track record that sets him up to be the person that should be on death row at this time. He should be someone that is receiving a sentence for his crimes. And Pilate is saying, do you want me to release to you this king of the Jews that I can't even figure out why you guys want to kill him? Or do you want me to release to you uh, this revolutionary, this known murderer. Which one is it? And the crowd, who we think could very well be made up of the same people that a week earlier were the ones with the palms who were saying, oh, here he is, Savior, our Savior, our Savior. The very same people are now yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, about Jesus. And as I've read this, I've tried to figure out in the past, who am I in the story, right? Am I one of the crowd members that has changed their mind that earlier I was voting for him and now I'm voting against him, right? Is that me? Or am I one of the disciples who might quietly be looking in the back on what are they about to do to this person I've been following for the last few years? Or am I Pilate? Or am I one of the guards? Like, where do I fit into the story? Well, it wasn't really until this past semester. And we have a men's group that meets at 6 a.m. here at the church called the Fraternity, and we're studying through something. And as I was preparing for one of the talks that morning, it finally hit me that week for the very first time that as I'm looking at the story, I've misidentified who I was the entire time that I've been reading this. I'd never seen that in the midst of this, uh, the executive coach that God has buried deep inside of this narrative is actually in this ancient ritual, or this tradition around Passover, that, that Pilate, the governor, is going to release someone. And the person that he is going to release is going to be the executive coach to help me understand who I am. And in the midst of this story, as I understand who I am, I realized, oh my goodness, I'm Barabbas. I am the guilty one who has a death sentence that is going to go free because Jesus is the one who goes to the cross. You see how that works there? As, as Jesus, the innocent man, is going to go to the cross, there's this guilty man, Barabbas, who is going to walk free. Right in the midst of this story, we have this wonderful picture of who we are in the gospel. We have this wonderful picture of what it actually means to be a Christian. Is to raise our hand and say, oh, we're the guilty ones. We're the ones that deserve this sentence of death because we have rebelled against the king of the universe. We have not lived life according to God's way. And in Genesis chapter 3, what he says is that those who sin, the wages of sin is death. And so this death that is coming on us that should be ours is no longer ours because the sentence that's, that we deserve has now been placed on someone else. Our perception is we have to understand who we are. Now, because it is my first time uh, to preach here at Christchurch, um, I put a ton of pressure on myself to figure out, okay, I've got these three misperceptions. We, under- we misunderstand who Jesus is as the king. We misunderstand sometimes how he's working in our life. We misunderstand and don't see ourselves correctly. How in the world am I going to wrap all this up? What if I can just find this like killer illustration that would just bring all this stuff home? Everybody's going to leave here with a, you know, they're just going to be fired up. They're going to they're be one and a half, live their life of faith and follow Jesus. And, uh, and as I did, one thing is they reminded me, hey, it's communion weekend. So guess what? You get six minutes less than the normal preacher on Sunday. So you got to make this shorter. Okay, well, I can, stay within the, I can stay within the limits on that. And then I go, oh, it's communion weekend. I don't need an illustration. God has given us this wonderful illustration. He's actually allowed us to participate. He's allowed the saliva in our mouths to fire off when we put bread in our mouth. And we get to taste 
the reality of the gospel. We get to drink this cup that, that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. That's how we identify who we are. That's how we understand the king that we have. And that's how we understand how God is working in our life. We're about to move to a time of communion uh, now. And before I do that, though, let me invite you to go to God with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, um, as we come, we all bring different associations of who we think you are. There are different ways that we are uh, processing information and and processing our own experiences of what it is that you have done and what it is that you're doing. Um, and, And Lord, I pray this morning, as we look at these three different situations around the last week in Jesus' life and how the disciples and the crowd and Uh, misunderstand what's going on. Lord, I pray that as we see these potential misperceptions that we can identify those in our lives as well so that we can live uh, more faithfully. We could live in the reality of the kingdom. We could live in the reality that you do rule and reign. This is your world and that you promise to be with us no matter what it is that we're going through. Father, I pray that that, uh, this next few moments would be a meaningful time for us as we share in the communion meal together as we partake in this ancient ritual uh, that Jesus reinterprets and explains that it's not just what happened there in Egypt and God delivering his people, but this is what I am doing. I am now uh, the sacrificial lamb. I am the one whose blood was spilled uh, for you so that you can have life, so that you can be forgiven. Father, we pray that would be meaningful to us as we close out the service this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.